This is the From Want to Hunt podcast, where we give you the information you need to go from want to hunt. Thank you for tuning in to From Want to Hunt. I'm your host, David Mefford. In today's episode, we'll be discussing weapons. Deciding what you want to hunt with can be a hard decision, and my goal is to give you enough of an overview in this episode to help you decide what weapon or weapons you should purchase. Before getting into this episode, I wanted to say, while my wife Darcy always helps proofread my episodes, I wanted to give a special thanks to my friend and fellow hunting enthusiast, Dr. Jake Bertrand, for his input on this episode, as well as my dad, Chip Mefford. When it comes to weapons, the first thing you should keep in mind is safety. When shooting guns, always wear eye and ear protection. More importantly, remember what firearm owners call the four rules. Number one, treat all weapons as if they are loaded. Number two, keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Number three, don't point your weapon at anything you aren't willing to destroy or kill. And number four, be sure of your target and what's beyond it. In my few short years of being a hunter, I've heard some unsettling and unsafe practices, one of which I've heard of is called a sounding shot. For those of you not familiar with sounding shots, good. A sounding shot is where you hear something moving through the brush, in a tree, etc., and you shoot at the sound. I'm recording this podcast in 2018, and in late 2017, I had seen three different news articles about supposed hunters shooting people that they thought were deer. Now, if you're taking time to make sure of your target and what's beyond it, something like that is not going to happen. I really wanted to reiterate, be sure of your target and what's beyond it. With rifles especially, don't take a shot if there isn't a backstop for the bullet. A good way to make sure you have a backstop is to make sure there is no sky above your target. This of course is not true for hunting waterfowl or other flying quarry, but hunting with birdshot shooting into the sky is different than a rifle round being shot into the sky. Birdshot has many small projectiles that slow to a non-lethal speed much faster than a rifle round designed to keep as much kinetic energy for as long as possible. If your target is standing halfway up a hill and you can see ground above and below the animal, then you more than likely have a good backstop. If you're at the bottom of a hill and you see a deer standing at the top with only the sky behind it, that's a terrible shot to take. If you miss, or even if you hit, when the bullet exits the animal, you have no idea where that bullet is going to go. Even if you have the backstop, if you haven't identified your target and you're taking a blind shot into the brush, you could actually be shooting at another hunter, livestock, or someone's pet. After safety, the next thing you should keep in mind is legality. Not only should you be making sure you can legally hunt with the weapons you purchase, you should make sure those weapons are legal to own where you live, as some states have stricter weapons laws than others. If you're going to be hunting public land or private land you've gotten permission on, You should also buy a weapon that's going to be allowed on the land you'll be hunting on. Keeping this in mind could dictate what you end up purchasing. At the inexpensive end of the spectrum, and something you may have experience with already, are air guns. While the Red Ryder BB gun you had growing up isn't a good choice for hunting, there are air guns made for hunting. A common caliber for air guns is .177 caliber, but for hunting, I would suggest at least a .22 caliber. The caliber, in the case of air guns, is how big around the projectile is in inches. In these cases, .177 inches and .22 inches around. I would avoid using BBs, or the spherical projectiles, and instead use pellets for hunting with an air gun. A pellet is normally more of a cylindrical shape, and is usually designed to expand on impact. 
like hunting rounds out of a traditional rifle. Pellets also tend to hold a more accurate trajectory than a smooth round projectile. With an air gun, you can generally legally hunt small birds, squirrels, and rabbits. While an air rifle is normally quieter and less expensive than a 22 rifle, the 22 will have further range and more kinetic energy than the air gun. The 22 rifle is similar to a 22 air gun in that the projectile is 0.22 inches in diameter, but instead of being projected by compressed air or a spring, it's projected by gunpowder. I do want to pause on the description of the weapon here and address some rifle terminology. You may hear a 22 called a rimfire rifle. When it comes to pistols and rifles, there are two major types of ammunition, rimfire and centerfire. Both types, when the trigger is pulled, the striker or hammer is released, hitting the firing pin. The firing pin in the gun moves towards the round in the chamber. With a rimfire, the firing pin hits the rim of the round to start the ignition of the gunpowder, and a centerfire has a primer assembled into the center of the back of the round that gets struck by the firing pin starting the ignition. Another difference between the two types of firearms is how you can practice. With a rimfire weapon, you can't dry fire practice with it. A dry fire is when you pull the trigger with no ammunition in the gun. With a rimfire, the firing pin will collide with other internals in the gun, damaging the gun. With a center fire, the firing pin just pushes into the air on a dry fire. A safe way to practice with either type are to use dummy rounds, sometimes called by the brand name Snapcap. These are rounds, normally painted blue or red, that are just hunks of metal shaped like a bullet, and they have rubber or plastic where the firing pin will strike. These are used so you can visually see there is not a live round in use, and it also makes sure your firing pin is hitting a surface that won't cause damage to it. Outside of the ammunition differences in rifles, there are also differences in what are called the action, or how the rifle is getting a fresh round of ammunition between shots. A break action rifle has you fold the barrel down to expose the chamber. You then manually remove the round you just fired and place a new one in. A break action shoots one shot at a time and holds no additional ammunition. Next is bolt action. Bolt action may or may not have a magazine to feed the next round of ammunition, but to get between shots, you have to unlock the bolt manually, move it back, and expose the chamber. If there's a magazine feeding more ammo, the casing from the previously fired round should be ejected as you cycle the bolt backwards, and the new round is pulled from the magazine and put into the chamber as you push the bolt forward. Similar to bolt action is the lever action. Instead of actuating the bolt directly, there's a lever below the trigger that you actuate between shots. After that, there's semi-automatic, sometimes, usually with shotguns, referred to as automatic. Don't let the word automatic in either of these cases scare you, as both of these only fire one shot with each pull of the trigger. Once you cock the weapon, meaning doing an initial action to get the round in the chamber, you can pull the trigger and the gun will automatically eject the spent round and put the next round in the chamber. Now there are fully automatic weapons, but these are not used in normal hunting situations. Fully automatic means you hold the trigger down and either a burst of ammunition comes out or ammunition keeps being fired until the magazine has been emptied or you release the trigger. While I do know burst fire is the correct term for multiple rounds per trigger pull, such as three or six, the ATF classifies anything that shoots more than one round per trigger pull as fully automatic. Fully automatic is not something you'll have to worry about unless you have a whole lot of time and money though, because buying them and shooting them is expensive. Back to the 22 rifle, a great benefit of the 22 is that it's inexpensive to shoot. 22 ammunition can be bought for between 8 and 10 cents a round compared to a 308, which is around a dollar per round. Again, these are 2017 prices and things cause prices to change and fluctuate all the time. 
to put the price in another perspective, it costs eight to ten cents every time you pull the trigger on a twenty-two, but costs a dollar to pull the trigger on a three oh eight. Even if you don't plan on hunting with a twenty-two, it can be a great starter rifle or pistol to get to drill home the basics of shooting before moving on to larger and more expensive calibers. If you do plan on hunting with a twenty-two, like an air gun, it can be used for small birds, rabbits, and squirrels, but you could also go for something slightly larger like raccoons or possums as well. If you want to get a very versatile weapon to get, pardon the pun, the most bang for your buck, you should look into a shotgun. A shotgun is at its most basic a rifle, but most people consider them in a class of their own outside of rifles. A shotgun can be semi-automatic, brake action, lever action, or pump action. Pump action is similar to bolt action in a traditional rifle, but instead of the piece to actuate the bolt being behind the chamber, it is a handle under the barrel. A pump action lets you keep your hands in their shooting positions and actuate the bolt, while a bolt action would require you to move your finger away from a shooting position to cycle between shots. The first thing to think of with a shotgun is the caliber, or gauge. The most common types of shotgun you can buy are 12 gauge, 20 gauge, and 410 bore. Less common, but you may also see 16 gauge or 10 gauge. When something is measured in gauge, the smaller the number, the bigger the projectile coming out of it will be. Gauge is an old way of measuring things. Put simply, it's how many pure lead balls that are perfectly round of that caliber it would take to consume a pound of lead. A 12-gauge barrel, bore, is 0.729 inches in diameter. 20-gauge is 0.615 inches. 16-gauge is 0.662 inches. And 410 bore is, unsurprisingly, 0.410 inches in diameter. After the caliber or gauge of shotgun, you also have to keep in mind the chamber size. If you have a two and three quarter inch chamber and try to load a three or three and a half inch shell, which is what shotgun ammunition is normally referred to as, you're going to have big problems. If you're lucky, it just won't load in. But if it does load in and lets you fire, it can cause the shotgun to catastrophically fail, injuring or killing you and anyone nearby. If you have a three and a half inch chamber and load in a two and three quarter inch shell, this is normally fine. Just check with, check with the manufacturer of your firearm before doing this. Shotguns can also come with different barrel types. Some shotguns have smooth barrels and others have rifled barrels. A rifled barrel means there is something inside the barrel called rifling, which are spiraled grooves. And those make projectiles spin as they travel through the barrel. Putting a spin on a projectile makes it more stable as it travels through the air, making it travel further and more accurately. If you have a rifle barrel, you don't want to shoot a multi-projectile shell, such as buckshot or birdshot, as it will damage the rifling. You only want to shoot a solid projectile, often referred to as a slug, for a shotgun. If you have a smooth barrel, you'll likely also have a choke, either built in or as a threaded interchangeable piece. A choke is a narrowing of the bore towards the end of the barrel. The tighter the choke is, the closer the multi-projectile shells group together as they travel. As something like birdshot, which is just a bunch of small BBs, travels out of a shotgun barrel, it spreads out, and it spreads more the further it gets from the point that you shot. No choke means more spread. A very tight choke means less spread. For hunting things like turkeys, you want a tighter choke as your kill zone is close and small, but you may not want as tight of a choke for things like dove or waterfowl, where you want the projectile to spread out to have a greater chance of killing the animal that is further away and moving. With a smooth barrel, you can buy rifled slugs. This makes the slug act similar to a normal slug coming out of a rifled barrel. Check with your firearm manufacturer if slugs can be fired out of your smoothbore shotgun. 
as some chokes may not be able to let the slug pass through, causing catastrophic failure of the firearm. Normally for slugs, out of a choked shotgun, you want to use a cylinder, which means no additional restriction, or improved cylinder, which is a very light constriction. Some people use a modified choke with slugs, but be sure to check with your shotgun and ammunition manufacturer for what they suggest. Also, if you're hunting waterfowl, you cannot use lead shot due to federal restrictions. Most people use steel shot for waterfowl, but you'll have to make sure the choke you have is rated for this. You may have to buy another choke that allows steel shot. You could have two different modified chokes for your shotgun. One, for example, you use for shooting lead with skeet shooting, and one that's rated for steel shot to use for waterfowl. Moving on to rifles, there are a lot of different calibers. I could spend an hour just talking about ammunition and what's called the 30 caliber range. Friendships have been lost over arguments about what rifle caliber is best. What I'm going to suggest is keep your research within calibers that are legal for hunting where you will hunt. If your locality has allowed it to be hunted with, they believe it has the ability to ethically harvest the animal you're after, and that should be good with you. I will say some calibers have more margin for error, meaning that a larger round or more powerful round would do more damage and have more kinetic energy, so a shot that's three inches off with one round might mean a dead animal with a certain caliber, but it could mean a lengthy tracking job with another round or caliber. To bring up semantics of different calibers, I want to bring up 308 Winchester, 3030, which when written out is 30-30, 30-06, written as 30-06, 300 Winchester Magnum, and 300 Winchester Short Mag. There are more that can be thrown in this discussion of 30 calibers, but I don't want to overload you with all of that. All of these calibers are .308 inches in diameter. The differences in them come down to the shape of the case and the amount of gunpowder in the load. These variables can affect the amount of kinetic energy transferred into your target as well as the trajectory that the bullet flies. You can't interchange the different rounds between the rifles even though the projectile is the same diameter. All of these calibers exist because someone had a use case for it and they thought they could make a better mousetrap, so to speak. People today will argue which one of these is best until they're blue in the face, but all of these calibers I've already mentioned would be perfectly fine for hunting white-tailed deer along with dozens of other calibers I haven't mentioned. Again, that's just a short overview of 30 caliber rounds. Two popular rounds for deer hunting that don't fall under the 30 caliber umbrella are the 270 and the 243. Once you pick a caliber, you should know that there are different types of ammunition. Where you hunt may dictate what you can buy, especially if you live in an area that has banned lead ammunition for any purpose. The first thing is to consider is the weight of the projectile, measured in grains. Grains is a very small unit of measurement, and 437.5 grains equals an ounce. There is no test here, and you don't need to know the grains to ounce conversion. I just mention it to help you visualize things as you research ammo. Within a single caliber, there can be several bullet weight options, and you should practice with a few to find what shoots well with your rifle and your shooting style. Outside of the weight differences, there are different types of bullets. There are full metal jacket bullets, which are normally used for practice and not for hunting. The name refers to a copper jacket fully encasing a leg core. These do not expand on impact. Next, there are soft tip bullets. Think of the copper part of the bullet as a volcano filled with lead, and you have an idea what a soft tip bullet is. It has a copper outside that encompasses the lead, and the lead is exposed at the tip of the bullet. The bullet is set up this way to assist with expansion. Why do you want the bullet to expand? When the bullet hits an animal and expands, it opens up a larger wound channel. 
A larger wound channel means faster blood loss and a faster, more ethical harvest. Another expanding bullet is the hollow point. Imagine the volcano again, but this time there's a crater that may or may not have exposed lead down in it. The gap of the crater is used to start the expansion once the bullet makes contact with its target. A hollow point can cause aerodynamics issues, so the ballistic tip was created. A ballistic tip is a hollow point with a plastic piece inserted in the crater to make the projectile more aerodynamic as it flies, but since the plastic is softer than the metal of the bullet, it does not cause issues with expansion once the bullet hits the target. Rifles are great for all kinds of wild game. You may want to purchase a rifle that's legal for several different types of game where you hunt, that way you could use the same rifle to hunt deer, elk, bear, and pigs. The last kind of firearm I'm going to touch on today are muzzle loaders, or some areas may refer to them as primitive weaponry. As the name implies, you load the weapon through the muzzle, or the business end of the barrel. You'll have to load powder, wadding, used to hold the powder in place, and the projectile in, and use something called a ramrod to pack it all in place. There is a location, called the breech, where you'll place the cap or primer that ignites the powder. When you pull the trigger, a striker or a hammer will strike the cap or primer, which then ignites the powder and fires the projectile. Some people hunt with muzzle loaders for the challenge, and others to take advantage of longer hunting seasons for muzzle loaders or primitive weapons. Okay, that's been quite a bit to take in on firearms, but what if you can't or don't want to hunt with a firearm? That's where archery comes into play. Most areas have very long archery seasons, so going the archery route will likely give you the longest period of time to get out and hunt, but it also greatly reduces your range and margin for error over using a firearm. Archery gets very involved as you dive into it, but I'm going to cover the basics like I have with firearms to get you steered in the right direction. When it comes to archery, there are a few different types of archery weapons, which I'll go over shortly, but they all share a few things in common. When you buy a bow of any sort, you first want to get measured for your draw length. If you have a local archery shop, that's the best place to get started. If not, a sporting goods store that sells archery equipment may be able to help, although their staff may not have the expertise of a specialized archery store. Your draw length is how far from the resting point to your anchor point, which will generally be the corner of your mouth, you pull the string back on the bow. The next thing to consider is the draw weight. This is the amount of resistance felt as you draw back the bow. Normally you want to start low and move your way up. When hunting, you do want to use a draw weight that is legal to hunt with, though you may have to start lower and work your way up. Some places have no draw weight restrictions for hunting, but other places will. Besides just being the resistance felt when you pull back, a heavier draw weight puts more force behind the arrow as it goes downrange and increases the kinetic energy transferred into your target. Another thing to consider when looking into getting a bow is the brace height. This is the distance between the string and its resting position and the deepest part of the bow grip. A shorter brace height normally means faster speeds, but a longer brace height can mean better accuracy and more forgiving of mistakes for beginners. When shooting a bow, you can shoot with a sight, but you can also shoot without a sight, often called instinctive shooting. When you shoot with a sight, there are sights with multiple pins and sights with only one pin. A multi-pin sight will have pins for different distances, usually starting at 20 yards and going up in 10-yard increments. You can easily adjust and move the pins and can set them at whatever distances you like. The distance of your target will change which pin you use to aim. For a single pin sight, it's normally adjustable to different distances via a dial, and you adjust the pin to the correct distance before aiming and shooting. When you practice, make sure that you practice at each distance of each of your pins for a multi-pin, and for a single pin, practice at at least how far you'll be hunting, if not further. 
I've seen a lot of archery hunters suggest practicing at twice the distance you plan on hunting. The reasoning behind it, this is that the further you can shoot accurately, the better you are with your equipment. If you're shooting fist size groups at 30 yards, and then go to 40 yards where you're shooting pie plate size groups, and, tighten, and then you tighten your 40 yard groups in to fist size, your 30 yard groups will be tighter together as well. When I practice, I normally start at 20 yards and try to get groupings where arrows are within a 4 inch circle before moving on to 30, then do the same thing at 30 before moving on to 40, and so on. With the general archery stuff down, we can get to the different kinds of bows, and I'll start with the longbow. A longbow is usually one solid piece of wood or fiberglass for the main body. A string is attached to the top and bottom, giving the bow its bend. A longbow does not have an adjustable draw weight like other types of bows do. If using a longbow, you'll likely have to put the string on anytime you want to use it and unstring it with finish. Next, we have the recurve bow. The bow has three major parts. The first part is the riser. This is the part of the bow that you will hold, has your arrow rest, and possibly your sight. The top and the bottom of the riser are where you will attach your limbs. You can normally swap out limbs to change weight and draw length for the bow. The next major part is the string. Like a longbow, you'll string and unstring your bow between uses. The next kind of bow is a compound bow. A compound bow is the most popular type of bow for hunting. The compound bow has a riser and limbs like a recurve, but the limbs are normally not interchangeable. A compound also does not get unstrung after use. The string always stays on and actually doesn't come off without the use of a bow press and should only be done by an experienced bow tech. A compound has a complex pulley system that guides the string through your pull and release. The wheels of the pulleys are often called cams. To change the draw length on a compound, you either have to swap pieces on the cams or some newer bows let you adjust pieces on the cams directly. If you have to swap pieces, this often needs to be done by a bow tech, but adjustable cams can normally be done by an average Joe like me. Most compounds have easily adjustable draw weight. Instead of changing the limbs, you loosen or tighten the bolts that hold the limbs on the riser. Loosening makes the draw weight lighter, and tightening makes it heavier. Be sure to check with the manufacturer of the bow to find out how much you can safely loosen these bolts, usually measured in turns, because loosening too much could cause the bow to come apart. And if that happens, it'll happen quickly and likely injure you and anyone standing near you. A piece of terminology unique to compound bows that you may hear is axle to axle. The axle is the piece that holds the cam on the top and bottom of the limbs of your bow. Axle to axle is the measure of this when the bow is not being drawn. A longer axle to axle will give you more stability. Something to know for all bows is to not dry fire them, and I would go as far as to say do not dry draw it. The word dry in this context means without an arrow. If you fire your bow without an arrow, all of the energy it has stored gets dissipated into the bow itself instead of into projecting an arrow downrange. This will likely cause damage to your bow and may even cause a catastrophic failure, injuring you or others. If you dry draw, you risk accidentally dry firing. If you accidentally dry fire, have your bow checked out by a professional bow tech before attempting to even draw the bow again. With all three types of bows, you want to pick your arrows. This is another area that you have to do your research to find what will work for you. You will find there are wood, aluminum, and carbon arrows, and now even some hybrid combinations of carbon and aluminum. Different types of arrows will fire differently or fly differently. You will want to get arrows that are slightly longer than your draw length as well to make sure the arrow doesn't fall away as you're drawing back. Depending on your draw weight, you'll want to find what stiffness, called spine, of the arrows you need. 
Different manufacturers will suggest different spines for the same draw weight, so be sure to do your research. Different arrows have different advantages and disadvantages as well. Wood arrows are cheap and light, but can break easily and usually aren't as straight as carbon or aluminum arrows are. The straightness of the arrow is minuscule and not noticeable by the human eye, but it can affect flight. Aluminum are heavier than carbon or wood, but are usually cheaper than carbon. Aluminum arrows also won't splinter like wood or carbon. Wood and carbon can both become damaged and splinter on impact or even on the initial release of the arrow, possibly injuring you or anyone nearby. Aluminum arrows are easy to bend, though. Once an arrow is bent or dented, flight won't be the same as with a factory fresh arrow. The arrows can bend on impact with a target, when being removed from a target, or even while being stored or transported. Carbon arrows are normally the most expensive. They are more resilient than wood, and the lighter arrow allows them to fly faster than aluminum arrows shot from the same bow. After every shot with a wood or carbon arrow, you should check the arrows for damage. You can do this by holding both ends of the arrow and lightly applying pressure to bend it ever so slightly and roll it. If it sounds like Rice Krispies with a snap, crackle, or pop, don't use the arrow. If any splinters stick out or away from the arrow, don't use the arrow. New arrows are less expensive than the medical bills of an arrow splintering into your hand. A big point of debate in the archery community is with crossbows. Some archers believe that crossbows are not true archery and should not be allowed to be used during archery season. Some people feel that crossbows are more similar to rifle hunting than archery hunting. Don't let other people decide for you whether you hunt with a crossbow or not. If it's legal for you to hunt with one and you want to, then you should hunt with one. Crossbows normally have a scope or other sight mounted to the top. Once a crossbow is drawn back, the string locks into place until the trigger is pulled. Your arrow, called a bolt for a crossbow, rests on a shooting rail until you pull the trigger. You may see regulations about power stroke for a crossbow, and this is the distance between the string at its fully cocked position and the string at its resting position. For draw weight on a crossbow, this is normally fixed and not adjustable, although some newer crossbows are coming to market that have adjustable draw weights. To cock a crossbow, you can use your hands, but that could cause the string to be cocked unevenly, making your bolt not travel straight. To fix this, you can buy a rope cocking device. This is a rope you can attach to the string and pull one handle on each side of the rail and pull back evenly until the string is locked back into the cocked position. Some crossbows have the option for something even easier, a crank cocking device. The crank cocking device clips to the string and you spin a handle slowly and it evenly pulls the string to the cocked position. As with any other piece of archery equipment, you do not want to dry fire it. If you do need to decock your crossbow, you normally need to fire a bolt, although some crossbows are now coming with decocking options, which work in reverse of the cocking action. If you're out hunting and don't have a target to carry with you for decocking purposes, you can buy a decocking bolt. This is a bolt with a heavy blunt head made to be fired into the ground. As with bows, there are different kinds of crossbows as well. There are recurve and compound. A recurve crossbow can be unstrung when not in use, but may not have the option to change the limbs like a recurve bow does. A compound crossbow has the same cam system as a compound bow. They normally come in higher draw weights than available in normal compound bows, and that draw weight is normally not adjustable. While crossbows can cause heated debate within the archery community, there is just as much, if not more, debate about what broadheads to use. A broadhead is the tip of the arrow used for hunting purposes. When practicing, you'll normally use a field tip, as they're less expensive than broadheads and don't damage targets as much. I do suggest buying a target that is rated for use with broadheads 
and to practice with your broadheads before going out to hunt. There are a few different kinds of broadheads. For small game, you may use a blunt or judo tip designed to not penetrate the animal, but rather transfer the arrow's energy into the animal to kill it with blunt force. For larger game, broadheads have razor sharp edges that are designed to cut and leave a wide wound channel. For these types of broadheads, there are fixed and mechanical. Friendships have been lost over which type of broadhead to choose, just like with rifle calibers. A fixed broadhead has no moving parts, but also usually flies different than tips that you use to practice. A mechanical broadhead has its blades folded in, and is designed to fly more similar to your practice tips. With a mechanical, you have to worry about if it will deploy properly when it makes contact with your target. If the blades do not come out, you may not do enough damage to ethically kill your animal, and may have to track for a long time or lose the animal entirely. Mechanicals normally have less failures as the draw weight used to fire it increases, so if you're using a lower draw weight bow, you may want to stick to fixed broadheads. Some people stay with fixed just so they don't have to worry about the deployment issues. Whatever you choose to use, just make sure you take some practice shots into a target rated for broadheads so you know what to expect when you're out hunting. I know there's a lot of information that was skimmed over or not covered, but you should now have the information you need to get started on finding a weapon. If you have any other questions, comments, or snide remarks, please send an email to fromwant2hunt, that's all one word, fromwanttohunt, at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to address those on a future episode. Thank you so much for listening, and tune in next time where we'll be discussing the day of the hunt.